Hey, I'm Felissa Rose, and you're watching Keto and Crime. If you were like me, kind of a nerd when you were growing up, not really athletic yourself, but like to watch athleticism, you may have been, and also loved drama and uh, just a good storyline. You may have been a fan of professional wrestling, just like I was. And then again, you may have been the exact opposite of that, a fan of professional wrestling and very athletic. But I grew up on the early days of wrestling, such as the old NWA before it became as big as it did, the old Continental Championship Wrestling, where my favorite wrestler was the gentleman you're seeing here, Bob Armstrong, also known as the Bullet. I was a huge fan of both him and his three sons, the Armstrong brothers. Um, so I grew up on them. These were primarily members of the old Continental Championship Wrestling Federation as well as the NWA before it merged with the WWE into the WWF into the WWE and became the mammoth that it is now. This is when wrestling was gritty and raw and uh, still scripted, but still gritty and raw. Uh, growing up in the South, wrestling was a huge part of my life. There was a lot of uh, semi-pro leagues. In fact, the Continental uh, Wrestling Federation started as a mid-southern, mid-Atlantic part of the old NWA. So wrestling was huge in the South. We used to go to a lot of amateur professional uh, amateur wrestling uh, matches um, every weekend. Uh, in fact, they were regular occurrences at the nearby fairgrounds. I have a couple of friends now that still do ring announcing for um, these types of wrestling matches, and I dated a, pro a professional, well, amateur professional he was semi-pro. <laughs> I dated a semi-pro wrestler for a couple of years as well. I'll tell that story sometime. But he's still a good friend of mine. But um, I always enjoyed wrestling. But there, just like everything, there is a dark side to wrestling. Uh, wrestling has more than the average amount of mysterious deaths and, unfortunately, suicides. And so that's what we're going to talk about, as well as crimes. A lot of crimes committed in this genre as well. So that's what we're going to talk about today. The dark side of wrestling. Let's get into it. everyone welcome back to keto and crime today i've got a request by a subscriber and a channel member on the dark side of professional wrestling now uh wrestling is something that was very very important to me growing up i had a minor obsession with um at least a couple wrestlers in most of the major regional uh federations we're talking the uh, wcw continental championship wrestling of course the wwf the old nwa even the united states wrestling federation um but before we dive into this i would like to do a quick background on the history of professional wrestling and kind of how all this kind of fits together but we're going to talk about some criminal activity as well as uh tragic accidental and self-inflicted deaths that have plagued professional wrestling. That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I hope you enjoyed. I'm going to stick to more modern wrestlers. That is most of the ones, you know, from 
the latter half of the 20th century and the 21st century, even though some of these go back as early as the early days of wrestling into the 1950s, as, you know, as far as the Federation system goes. So, a lot of different ones. You could find hundreds of these, tragically. But we're going to stick to the most well-known and more modern times. With that being said, I'd like to give a, a huge shout-out to my channel members and my patrons. If you'd like to join them, those links are down below. If not, if you have not subscribed, the best thing you can do for the channel is to hit a like button, hit that subscribe button, get us into the YouTube algorithm. And with that being said, let's jump in. Professional wrestling in the United States, as it exists today, the scripted, semi-real semi type of wrestling that you get. And as a kid, I would literally fight you if you told me it was scripted and fake. But, you know, that's the wonderment of being a child. Um, that type of wrestling can go back as far as the 1950s, where you literally had as many as 50 different wrestling alliances and federations all across the country, each one spouting a welterweight, a, mid, a midweight, and a uh, heavyweight with the appropriate champions as well. So you had as many as 50 world wrestling champions in the United States. You also had leagues in Japan, where it's also very, very popular, as well as in Europe. But when did we get to the system we have today, which is literally the WWE dominating everything? Well, I would say that started happening in the late 80s, early 90s with Vince McMahon. But prior to him, uh, all those 50 different alliances had pared down to maybe 8 to 10 regional alliances uh, with them kind of merging and forming together to remain more profitable. You found a whole lot of them concentrated in the South. The South is a huge hotbed for professional wrestling and even amateur wrestling. There's still amateur wrestling that goes on all the time in Tennessee. So very, very important to the culture. I, I, I don't know why, but we just tend to like it. It's just a way to let loose and have fun in a way that should not be harmful as it is scripted. So as I mentioned in my intro, I did date for a couple of years an amateur wrestler who was injured several times. I also had a classmate that went into amateur wrestling, injured several times, though accidentally, even though it's supposed to be, you know, mostly fake. But there's still a whole lot of athleticism that is required to be one of these wrestlers. It's not just anybody can get, get up and get in there. It's not just actors. They have to be athletes as well. So there's still quite a bit of athletic skill that goes into this. Don't think that these people are just, you know, couch potatoes that get up and decide they want to be a wrestler. Uh, so, very athletic. But you had all these different ones that kind of parred down to 8, and t eight to 10. You had several. You had the NWA, National Wrestling Alliance, which uh, was headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. And then it kind of started merging with some of the other ones, like the United States Wrestling Federation, uh, the Continental Championship Wrestling. You had um, World, World Championship Wrestling, which was started by Ted Turner, also in Atlanta, which eventually became the NWA. So you had all of these different wrestling federations that started merging with, with each other until it was down to just a few. So some of the wrestlers we're going to talk about may have ended up in the NWA, the WWF, and now the WWE before their deaths, but they may have started in some of these more regional federations and alliances. So that's kind of how it, uh, how it panned out, and now 
You have the WWE, which is basically all of them combined into one under Vince McMahon and his investors that now dominate and basically have a monopoly on the sport, so to speak. So, that's the state of professional wrestling today. Now, let's get into some of these tragic deaths, shall we? Uh, anybody could ever say in the middle of this ring. Um, William Bond, who you guys know is Lance Von Erich. Again, 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 I'm embarrassed. The family is degraded, and we're sorry. But uh, he's refused to come to the ring tonight to face Brian Deathman. Let's talk about Chris Von Urich, shall we? Uh, Chris Von Urich was a member, uh, born actually Christopher Barton Atkinson, uh, September 30th, 1969, near Dallas, Texas. He was the member of a wrestling dynasty. He was the son of professional wrestler and owner of one of the largest territories in the world-class championship wrestling league, WCCW, which eventually merged with the WCW. His dad owned part of that, so of course he was a champion. You know, money talks, just like at everything else. But his dad was Fritz von Urich, who was one of the main champions of that league. So Chris grew up in a wrestling dynasty where his dad was a wrestler, and several of his brothers were also wrestlers. Chris started wrestling along with his brothers. They had a staged rivalry with a duo known as the Fabulous Freebirds, and it was Chris who kind of worked as a ring boy, a ring runner, an errand runner, kind of a junior member of the heart of uh, the Von Urich team, while uh, they wrestled with their rivals, the Fabulous Freebirds. Now, uh, in real life, all these people were really good friends, and it's rumored that at the age of 13, his 13th birthday, Chris's 13th birthday, was actually the night of a match between the Freebirds and his brothers, and they actually paid a groupie, known as a ring rat, to initiate him into manhood. I'll just leave it at that. So this is the kind of atmosphere that these young men grew up in. Uh, I don't have any proof of that, but that is what I read. So let's just say that professional wrestlers, particularly in the 80s and 90s, were 70s, 80s, and 90s, it was like a rock star kind of thing. I mean, it still is. I mean, think of a hair band. A lot of these, a lot of these wrestlers mimicked themselves after, you know, heavy metal, hair band type singers. So there was a lot of groupies. There was a lot of drugs, a lot of, you know, steroid abuse going on. And this is how young Chris grew up. And he wanted to be like his dad, like his brothers, so he had no other career choice except, in his mind, to be a professional wrestler. In 1990, with help from his dad and his older brothers, he became a professional wrestler with the United States Wrestling Association, the USWA, and was immediately pitted as a rival to one of the more popular villains in that genre named Percy Pringle. Uh, he was a tag team with his brother Kevin as well, but also did a lot of solo wrestling. Even though he wasn't as athletic as his father or his brothers, 
he developed because of his personality a huge following and so there were lots of chants of audiences screaming go chris go during his matches and he eventually rose to be one of the stars of the uswa but several things limited chris from being a huge star and breaking out into some of the bigger associations number one his physical stature he was 5'5", 175 pounds, so he was very small. He also had asthma, severe asthma. And as a result, he had to take a lot of steroids, like prednisone for his lungs, as well as taking prednisone while he was working, uh, taking steroids, other steroids for his, to work out and bulk up. As a result, he had a lot of physical problems. He had very brittle bones from taking the prednisone, and he also started to suffer some mental illness brought on by the 1987 suicide of his brother, Mike. Um, he was never the same after that. He also became depressed that because of his physical limitations and his size, he was never going to be a true champion of any league, Never, nor was he going to make it into any of the bigger leagues. You know, he certainly wasn't going to get tapped by Vince McMahon's crew at that size. So he really started to uh, have issues with uh, substance abuse, and it became kind of a thing where he was in and out of rehab a lot of his life, and it really, really stymied what could have possibly potentially been a decent career if he had not had that compounded with the physical limitations. September 12th, 1991, around 9 p.m., his brother Kevin and his mother found him dead outside of the family farmhouse in Edom, Texas, evidently at the age of tender age of 21, dead from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound with a 9mm pistol. Um, he was taken by ambulance to the local East Texas Medical Center where he died 20 minutes later. Toxicology reports revealed that he was full of both cocaine and Valium and he had actually talked to his brother Kevin earlier that day about his depression it was revealed that kevin had found an apparent suicide note that chris had written and had confronted him about it but somehow he convinced kevin he would be okay uh unfortunately he wasn't we know mental illness is a killer and it definitely was here as well i'm sure compounded by the substance abuse um he was inducted as i said the wwe kind of absorbed all of these smaller federations and alliances and, and he was inducted into the World Wrestling Entertainment WWE Hall of Fame in 2009. So, rest in peace, Chris Von Urich. Next, we have um, Chris's older brother, uh, Mike Von Urich, who actually, as I said, was one, he was actually the uh, brother that unfortunately Chris. Depression spiraled out of control when he, he died very prematurely of, of suicide. But he was one of the five Von Urich brothers. Uh, he actually started wrestling, uh, not because he wanted to. He actually just wanted to work for his father's wrestling association, the WCCW, as a cameraman. He never wanted to be a wrestler. He was kind of the opposite of Chris. Chris was small, you know, very small in stature, very kind of sickly. Mike was just the opposite of that. He was large. He was six foot two, uh, 238 pounds, very muscular, no health uh, issues that we know of. And he could have very well been a wrestler, but it was the exact opposite. He didn't want to do it. He wanted to be a cameraman. But unfortunately, because of family pressure, his brothers were wrestlers. 
he kind of got sucked into it against his will. He made his debut debut uh, November 24th, 1983, at the age of 21, wrestling against WCCW star Skandor Akbar uh, at a uh, Star Wars, you know, they called this battle like an ultimate battlecade, Star Wars, so he was then involved with them. That led to the longtime Von Urich rivalry with the fabulous Freebirds, who, which I spoke about earlier, even though they were friends in real life and... Uh, Mike and the Freebirds, along with the rest of his brothers, is the ones that supposedly get Chris initiated into teenagehood. But it was a long-standing rivalry uh, between them. But they were all good friends, as well as, you know, well-known wrestlers like King Kong Bundy was part of this crew. But he he was a rising star wrestling with his brother, sometimes tag team, sometimes solo, but ended up becoming quite a star in the WCCW. He was one of the only Von Urich brothers to be picked up by a Japanese traveling wrestling show, and he spent a few days on their tour, uh, traveling the world as a well-known professional wrestler until eventually returning to Texas and again trying to kind of back out of the whole wrestling lifestyle. But unfortunately, um, just like his brother, younger brother Chris, he also suffered from substance abuse and mental illness. And um, basically, after the death of his older brother, David Von Urich, this family has suffered a lot of tragedy. Uh, he kind of felt the pressure to kind of step up and be the older Von Urich brother and be the next world champion, you know, world championship, continental championship wrestling champion. And unfortunately, it didn't work out. He uh, left a suicide note on April 12, 1987, and overdosed on a sleeping drug known as Placidal. Uh, and a few, a few days before his death, he had been arrested for a DWI, so his substance abuse was spiraling out of control. Um, unfortunately, for the Von Urich families, this tends to be kind of a pattern for them. He was a much more highly decorated champion than his younger brother Chris and was eventually, along with Chris in 2009, uh, uh, inducted into the WWE Wrestling Hall of Fame. It was an important match for Owen, up against the new star of the WWF. It would turn into a disaster. Crowd is right where we wanted them. Everything was perfect. Owen Hart was born May 7th, 1965, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. He was a member of the Hart family wrestling dynasty. He being the youngest child of Stu and Helen Hart, who was, uh, Stu was a native of Alberta, where Helen was from New York City. As a result, everyone in the family had dual Canadian-American citizenship. There were 11 siblings, so had a lot of kids. <laughs> um, he came from a wrestling dynasty, uh, moreover known by his older brother, Bret Hart, who was much more well-known, but uh, he ended up uh, joining a uh, wrestling internationally in uh, Europe under uh, the name the original British Bulldog, which if you've heard, the British Bulldog's fairly, a fairly well-known name in professional wrestling. There's been several of them 
Owen Hart was one of the first. Uh, he wrestled both um, in Europe and then later on in Japan, developing quite a uh, and following. Uh, he also finally was tapped to join the WWF, much along the prompting of his older brother, Bret Hart, who is much more well-known as the Hitman. But, uh, and that kind of was his way into the WWF. However, uh, wrestling was not his first choice. He wasn't really an aggressive guy, from all accounts, was one of the nicest, sweetest people you'd ever want to know. His wife, Martha, wrote a book called Heart of Gold, which kind of showed that he was much more of a, uh, a philanthropist, uh, a giver, believed in, in charity, just a really nice guy, and wasn't really the wrestling type, but unfortunately, when you come from a family like that, as we saw with the Van Urex, it just sort of happens, and so he ended up getting paved into the WWF by virtue of being Bret Hart's younger brother, even though they didn't start out promoing like that. They actually, again, put a mask on him, just like he had with the British Bulldog persona, and became a character known as the Blue Blazer. And he became developed quite a following in the WWF under that character name. His debut as that character was in 1998 under the Survivor Series, 88, where he was in a cage match with uh, wrestling superstars like the Ultimate Warrior, Brutus Beefcake, Sam Houston, Honky Tonk Man, a lot of these bring back memories. A lot of these names bring back memories. Uh, Dangerous Danny Davis, Greg Valentine, to eventually be eliminated from the event by Greg Valentine. In 1990, uh, 1989, he was a member of Saturday Night's Main Event 20 and was defeated by Mr. Perfect in his WWF finale, at least for this part of his career, by Mr. Perfect at WrestleMania. Shortly after WrestleMania 5, he, with his contract with WWF being up, he returned to Europe with the uh, Wrestling Stampede, which is the European League. Eventually, after that ended, he went returned to Japan, still doing the Blue Blazer gimmick until he lost an exhibition match with a Mexican wrestler known as El Sanque and had to unmask himself. So he kind of lost his blue blazer persona and had to go on with wrestling as just Owen Hart. And he did that uh, by virtue of World Championship Wrestling, the WCW, where he debuted as Owen Hart in March 16, 1991, where he competed in five different matches over the course of about a month and was actually kind of split the decision. He didn't always win, but he, he didn't always lose either. Kind of a split decision. And then because of family pressure, the WWF wanting to usher him back in to kind of do something along with older brother Brett, he was brought back into the WWF in 1991, the latter part. Brett and his then-brother-in-law, the wife of one of his sisters by the name of Jim Nedhart, had formed the ever-popular Hart Foundation, which was kind of a staple in early 90s WWF wrestling. However, they had split up, and so Owen kind of came in as a, as a single wrestler. But when Jim returned after an injury, the two set up a a new tag team known as the New Foundation, leaving Brett out of it. So there was some drama there, which, you know, beefed up the storyline. And so as a result, they had some, some good victories. They beat some well-known uh, 
tag teams such as the Orient Express and the Royal Rumbles. Uh, they also uh, wrestled the Head Shrinkers in, a couple of times, which they did end up losing to in one of their Survivor, WWF Survivor Series matches. And then the team was just kind of quietly dropped with Nightheart kind of leaving wrestling and Owen becoming, again, a singles wrestler. In uh, March of 1993, he was taping a Superstars WWF match against Bam Bam Bigelow, which he suffered a knee injury, which kept him sidelined for about two months. Late 1993, early 1994, Owen was back, and he got in the middle of a family rivalry with older brother Brett, as well as his two other brothers, Bruce and Kevin. They were having a scripted rivalry with a wrestler known as Jerry the King Lawler, and as a result, there ended up being sort of a Royal Rumble cage match situation scheduled between the Hart Brothers and Lawyer's people. Uh, unfortunately, Owen was accidentally eliminated from it when he and one of his brothers accidentally smacked into each other and he was injured. And then after he came back, he essentially held some animosity toward his older brother, Brad, I guess from always in his shadow and there ended up being a partially real partially scripted rivalry between brett and owen hart that culminated in a steel cage match at a wwf summer slam series in which owen lost probably scripted but he lost and brett was named king of hearts um over the next few years the prominent uh, rivalry between the two brothers continued both in singles matches and in tag team with owen teaming with the new British Bulldog against Brett and his partner of the day. Um, finally, um, it was during one of these Royal Rumbles and then in a singles match at uh, Royal Rumble 1995 where Owen beat his brother Brett, therefore preventing him from becoming the WWF champion and allowed then-wrestler Diesel to be crowned champion. So as you can see, this kind of continued on with a 1997 culmination on a Monday Night Raw of Bret Hart showing up at a match in which Owen was again challenging another of the Hart brothers and spoke about the importance of family and the, all the theatrics that the WWF and WWE are known for. And eventually all the differences were put aside. And then Bret, Owen, uh, Jimmy Neidhart and a family friend, Brian Pillman, came together to form the new Hart Foundation in late 1997. And as wrestling scripts do, they went from being good guys to bad guys. You had the Black Heart, and then, then you had the new Hart Foundation again, and so back and forth. He was quickly becoming one of the more well-known superstars in the WWF and would have probably still been a superstar, at least a ring announcer or something today, if it had not been for tragedy that befell him on May 23, 1999, when Kansas City, Missouri, in an over-the-edge pay-per-view match, he was being lowered, Owen Hart was being lowered via harness and grapple into the ring from the rafters of uh, the Kansas City Arena, the Kemper Arena, uh, for a Intercontinental Championship match against wrestler The Godfather. Unfortunately for Owen, there was a mechanical malfunction and he fell 78 feet, uh, landing chest first on the top rope turnbuckle 
of the wrestling ring and throwing him back into the ring. He was rushed to the hospital and later died from his injuries at 34 years of age. The most ironic thing is that since this was pay-per-view, fans at home were, were told that he had died. Whereas the fans in the arena were not told until after the fact. It's almost as if the WWF wanted the energy to continue that whole show must go on mentality, even though the people at home were told that Owen Hart had died. Throughout the course of his career, uh, Owen Hart won almost every wrestling championship possible except for the WWF Heavyweight Championship, which they always just held just out of his, out of his reach, but he has, of course, since been inducted into the Wrestling Hall of Fame. Rest in peace, Owen. Vengeance, Night of Champions! Mr. McMahon would have wanted the show to go on, and indeed it will. We Introduce the first new the champion, champion, weighing 234 pounds, Chris Benoit! The Rabbit Wolverine and ECW. This is probably my, one of the most well-known dark side of wrestling stories ever. The tragedy of... Chris Benoit and his second wife Nancy Benoit who was actually a wrestler herself. She wrestled uh, in the World Championship Wrestling and Extreme Championship Wrestling under the ring name Woman and as far as the WWF, WWE, she was actually a valet which is basically the female manager, female partner of, you know, well-known wrestlers. We've seen them, you know, think of... Um, Macho Man Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth, th those kinds. So she was also one of the more well-known valets in the industry. But let's talk about this tragedy, shall we? He was born in, on May 21st, 1967 to, to Michael and Margaret Benoit in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Although he spent the majority of his childhood in Edmonton, Alberta. And that's where he was always billed as being from. He idolized professional wrestling, especially Tom Dynamite Kid, Billington, and Bret Hart of the Hart Foundation. At 12 years old, he attended a local wrestling event um, where he saw both of them wrestle and became lifelong fans. He even trained to be a professional wrestling uh, wrestler under the Hart's Family Dungeon Wrestling Academy. And there's still wrestling schools around like that. I believe theirs is actually still in in existence where he was trained by Hart family patriarch Stu in what it takes to become a wrestler. Of course, he became quite physically fit, worked out, and set his sight on being a professional wrestler. He would even uh, adopt one of the famous Hart final holds or finishing moves on opponents known as the sharpshooter, which would become his signature finishing attack uh, during his career. And he would spend 22 years in the business before his tragic end. Like some of the wrestlers we talked about earlier in the Hart family, he also joined his first foray into wrestling was Europeans Stampede Wrestling, where he de developed quite a following uh, with the name Dynamite Chris Benoit. Uh, he was basically doing professional moves that should not be done by such a young wrestler, but he developed, because of his ability to adapt and really put on the show, he developed a huge following in the European um, league from 1985 to 1989, which led 
the Japanese Federation to pick him up, and he ended up training in one of the New Japan dojos there from 86 to 94, where he again developed quite a following, advancing all the way into their junior heavyweight division, which if you know the Japanese um, prominence of wrestling, both sumo and otherwise, quite an accomplished for a young kid from uh, Canada. In between his seasons at in the Japan League, he began working with uh, the Extreme Championship Wrestling League in the United States and began doing some tours there where he again developed a reputation as a hard butt. I mean, he literally was quite rough with opponents. In fact, in 1994, he used a crippler move on Rocco Rock and essentially put him out of the match way before it was scripted for him to be put out of the match. And then later on that same year, he accidentally broke another competitor's neck during a match. He did survive, but did ended up breaking this dude's neck. He was, of course, sanctioned, told to, kind of told to layer it down. Um, they put him as a tag team team member with a, a wrestler named Dean Malakino for a little while to try to have somebody watch him so he wasn't quite so violent. Uh, he also started doing some uh, stints with World Championship Wrestling, the WCW, and eventually, as I said, became quite uh, a popular superstar. After a brief return to Japan, he was officially brought back to WCW in late 1995, where he stayed for the next four years as part of the uh, tag team and wrestling team known as the Four Horsemen, with partners Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, and Brian Pillman. Um, basically, they were kind of the enemies of Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage, uh, known as their alliance to end Hulkamania, and they teamed up with another anti-Hulk Hogan uh, stable known as the Dungeon of Doom, and ended up having a very long-standing rivalry with Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan's crew of heroes, you know, wrestling against good guys and bad guys. Um, also, uh, Chris Benoit had also divorced his first wife, with whom he had two children, was now kind of playing the field, uh, alongside of uh, basically having an affair with uh, his uh, fellow Four Horsemen, Bill Pil Brian Pillman, having an affair with his wife, Nancy, as it were, which it actually turned out was actually scripted to kind of break apart the Four Horsemen and become kind of a catalyst for more drama. As I said, Nancy Benoit was a valet as well as a female wrestler, and it was scripted that her and uh, Brian were having, an, Chris were having an affair to uh, kind of drive along the drama, but it developed into a real affair which ended up kind of breaking up the Four Horsemen anyway, permanently. Nothing to say this. I could tell you about all of Benoit's 22 different titles during his 22 years, including United States Champion, World Champion, Tag Team Champion. But if I told you about every specific drama line Benoit was ever involved in, we would be here all day. So let's jump ahead to June 25th, 2007. For the last, he and Nancy have married. They have a seven-year-old son. Uh, they have moved to Fayetteville, Georgia, which is, of course, the headquarters of WWE. And he's having quite a career. However, he's been in and out of rehab for abuse of prescription drugs, 
depression, anxiety, other issues, and there was a bit of concern around him and his temper. Um, on June 25th, 2007, uh, upon fellow WWE staff members being worried that he had missed some scheduled practices, some scheduled uh, appearances, they asked the local police to do a welfare check on the Benoit home. Upon entering, um, they found his wife, Nancy, and their seven-year-old son, Daniel, dead in the upper part of the house at approximately 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Daniel was found in his room, uh, dead from strangulation on his bed. Uh, Nancy was found with her hands tied behind her back, strangled to death as well. After then going through the rest of the house, they found Chris dead from an apparent self-inflicted hanging from one of his weight machines. Upon toxicology reports, it was reported that both Chris and Nancy had therapeutic levels of Xanax, hydrocodone, and hydromorphine in their bodies. Um, it did not appear to investigators that Nancy had fought back or struggled, so perhaps it was a shock to her. We don't know. Perhaps she was drugged. There's been a lot of speculation on exactly what happened, but it appears that it happened over the course of about three days. First, Chris killed his wife, then his son, then himself, so it happened over the course of about a weekend. Um, Daniel was found to have a almost lethal dose of Xanax in his system. Evidently, his father had knocked him out before he killed him. Both Nancy and Daniel were found with the Bible next to them. Um, and as a result, we can only attribute it to a depressive episode, a depressive manic episode in which this happened. Um, later on, tests revealed that Benoit's brain, the brain patterns in it had been so severely damaged by years of wrestling, years of um, use of steroids, use of other drugs, that he essentially had the brain of an 85-year-old. Uh, it resembled an Alzheimer's patient, according to most doctors, uh, some neurosurgeons that looked at it. So, they believe that perhaps he had an episode where maybe he didn't know where he was, he panicked, and as a result, may have killed his wife in a panic, not knowing who she was type of episode, and then in a state of depression, also killed his son. Bottom line, we don't know. Uh, roid rage has been uh, put out there as a reasoning, but most people that have examined the evidence say that it doesn't look like a rage type of episode. There wasn't a lot of damage in the, there wasn't any damage in the house at all, except of course for the, the dead bodies. Um, that it was a calmer kind of crime, so they suspect that maybe it was just some sort of blackout episode in which it happened so quickly, and then perhaps his son was killed in a fluid moment after he realized what he had done, and the fact that he placed Bibles next to their body lead to believe that he was sorry for what he did and it was not planned nor was it rage it was just as i said he had the brain patterns of an 85 year old man um and what does all this stem from i i think it's just like anything else where people are put into the spotlight they 
are treated as rock stars, gods by their fan base. There's lots of drug abuse, uh, with the stigma against mental illness in our country. They don't always get the mental health help, uh, help that they need. And lots of this, uh, is a result of that. Some of this is tragedy, as with Owen Hart. Uh, some of it mental illness, as with the Von Urichs, and now with this, uh, definitely mental illness and drug abuse combined, led to what happened. Um, this was definitely a dark day for professional wrestling, but these four cases that we've talked about today are only chipping the surface. There are many more. If you want to look up dark and early deaths in professional wrestling, there are hundreds, hundreds of these cases, and it's really sad. There's definitely some things there that need to be looked into, I would say. But with that being said, I'm going to end this story. I'll be back real soon with my Q&A video as well as an all-new white-collar crime video. And until then, keto and crime.